Okay, good morning everyone. How are we all today? Oh, well, that's a bit, a bit underwhelming. <laughs> How are you all today? Ah, <laughs> uh, that's more like it. Jolly good. Uh, well, I hope you're treating your, your fathers and husbands well today. Uh, I'm afraid I didn't get breakfast in bed this morning, which was somewhat disappointing. But there we go, maybe tomorrow. So, we're two months into our series, uh, the, the Journey to the Promised Land. And I hope you're enjoying it so far. Certainly the preachers are... And I don't know about you, but the thing that struck me the most is just how relatable these Old Testament characters are. Despite it being ancient, ancient history, we've been able to connect with them and learn from them. And that's whether it's positively with the likes of Abel, Noah or Abraham, or negatively like Adam, Cain and to some extent actually Jacob. And isn't it interesting that this flawed man, Jacob, is the one that God decided to name Israel. And it's his children that become the people of Israel in the story that we're looking at today. So why can we relate to these people from ancient, ancient times? Well, I think it's because, frankly, human beings don't seem to have changed very much. Do you agree? I think that's true. Um, But God certainly hasn't changed, which means as we witness how God relates to these people, then actually we're learning about how God might relate to us. For we are the new Israel, and God's purposes for his people then are still his purposes for his people now. So that's the continuity. That's why this stuff matters for us. And I believe that this revelation of God's purpose for us actually comes as early as the story we're looking at today. So let's pray. Let's pray that God would bring it alive and really inspire us in what our role is is in serving God. Father, thank you for Joseph. Thank you that he uh, was so faithful to you. Thank you that you protected him from death at the hands of his brothers. And that ultimately he protected his brothers and his wider family from death of famine. Lord, show us what we can learn from him and make us people who like him. Know your blessing. Know your anointing and are willing to go the paths you lead us on, whatever difficulties they may bring, for your glory. Amen. Okay, so I've got three main things I want to say to us today, and the first of which is this. We need to know the Father's love, which on one level is, of course, the the cause of the problem that we have in this passage today, or, or rather the story of Joseph, which we didn't read, but which you've heard about. Human love, father's love is the problem in the sense that Jacob is clearly so unequal in his love. And that's the first golden rule of parenting, isn't it, which Jacob has broken. You don't show favoritism. You don't uh, give one child a a coat like this. There we go. (laughs) Well, the rest of them are wearing clothes like this. And you can see what the result was of it there. And I have to say also, though, I think a second rule of parenting might be you don't choose a 17-year-old's clothes for them, because that was the age uh, Joseph was actually at. But his brothers were so jealous. They, they had, I guess, good reason to resent him, uh, particularly if he perhaps was not the humblest of individuals at that point in his life. And the dreams that Joseph shared with them 
were, to be honest, the final straw. That's what led to him being thrown into the the empty cistern as he is there. And also it's what led to when these merchants going to Egypt popped by to plan C being adopted. And uh, they didn't just get rid of Joseph, but they found a way to make money out of it as well. So Joseph was sold, a goat was slaughtered, the dream coat was dipped in blood, presented to Jacob, and Joseph's father was devastated, distraught, his favourite son apparently dead. And yet this story isn't just about an earthly father, for Joseph was a man of great faith who believed God's promises. That's the implication of all that we read about Joseph in those many chapters. He believed the dreams that God gave to him. And he went on expecting God to speak to him. He believed in a God who speaks, as do I, and I hope you do too. He expected if God gave dreams, they would be fulfilled. And he expected if he walked God's way, that God would bless him. And all the accounts of Joseph's uh, time under Potiphar and under the Pharaoh suggest he was blessed greatly. He believed that God the Father loved him. And so too should we. And we sang that song, didn't we, at the end of the worship set about how he's a good, good father. Great choice for Father's Day, Lily. And a great song for us just to be reminding ourselves of Because being assured of our Heavenly Father's love is so vital, so love-giving. The Apostle Paul put it like this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, the present nor the future, nor any powers nor height, or depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wonderful verses, wonderful truths. What they're telling us is that God's love is infinite. It can't be exceeded. It's as big as anything can be. And yet it's also inclusive. He loves us all whether or not we choose to receive it. But what those verses also tell us is that we should also expect trouble, hardship, persecution and the rest. Total love, which is what God offers us, doesn't equate to total comfort. And that's my second point this morning. Bad stuff happens and we shouldn't be surprised by it or devastated by it. And it isn't always our fault or something that we bring on ourselves. Maybe Joseph's arrogance, if that's what he was like, perhaps played a role in what happened to him. But there's plenty of suffering and what happened to him later certainly was not any fault of his own. It's the nature of discipleship. It's why Jesus said, addressing all subsequent believers, we must take up our cross and follow him. At no point did he promise a smooth, comfortable pathway. If we want to make a difference for him, it's a combat role. Cowards need not apply. And though it's and actually choosing to live God's way and believing that Jesus is the only way 
the truth and the life. We'll actually put some people's backs up, just as Joseph put his brother's backs up. Why? Because people don't want to be confronted with the reality that there is a God, with the reality that he calls us to live a certain way, with the reality that we will one day be judged by him. And just from my own life, I'll just tell you one story. When I was um, in my late 20s, just before I went into the ministry, a a few of us in our company were Christians who met each week, felt God prompting us to start an Alpha course in our workplace. We put posters up around the the centre, around the office. Uh, We had permission from the MD of the company. And when it came to our first session, I think there were five who'd come along to take part in the course. And there were another three who turned up to picket it. We knew them. They were people we worked with. We, were, we thought it bizarre. We said, why are you here? Why are you doing this? And they said, I don't think it's, we don't think it's fair that we would be confronted by the possibility that there is a God in our workplace. I got, looked, looked a bit more into it as I got to know those guys. Each of them, interestingly, was a lapsed Catholic And all of them had reasons in their history to want to suppress any sense that there might be a God out there. And yet if only they had grasped, if only they knew that the God they're trying to ignore is actually a God who loves them so much, then surely that response would have been different. Our God is not a God to fear He's a God who can give us all our deepest desires. And we need to have the confidence to still talk to people about him, even if that's not a subject that they welcome much. So, bad stuff happens. It's the nature of the role, being a disciple of Jesus. But whatever befalls us, God is sovereign. God is in control. That's why Joseph, in the final chapter of Genesis, could say to his brothers who were terrified of him, once Jacob had died, he said this to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And it's why Paul also could rejoice in Philippians 1, despite his imprisonment that what had happened to him had actually advanced the gospel because throughout the whole palace guard, everyone knew he was in chains for Christ. And because of his imprisonment, the other brothers and sisters in the Christ have become more confident in the Lord and dared all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. We're going to face opposition, folks. Stuff's going to go, go wrong. It's inevitable. And when it does, we shouldn't be devastated by it. We shouldn't be surprised by it. Because we're in a spiritual battle. And we should expect that Satan will push back. But God is supreme. And such is his supremacy over the devil. That even disasters are opportunities. God can redeem any situation. God can work any circumstance for good. So it's not whether we suffer or not that determines our fruitfulness as Christians. It's about how we respond to it when it comes. And in this, Joseph is a model for us all. For after being sold 
into slavery, if you're, if you're not familiar with the whole story. Um, he at first falls on his feet. He's taken in by uh, Potiphar, who is uh, the captain of the guard to the pharaoh, so a very important person. And he soon gives responsibility to Joseph, who clearly has a flair for administration and leadership and management. And uh, basically, everything he touches turns to gold. Unfortunately, though, it was the thing he didn't touch that was his undoing. Potiphar's wife, offended at him for refusing her advances, pretends that she's refused him. And so, so outraging her husband that he felt he had no choice but to throw him into prison. So it was back to square one for Joseph. Yet how does he respond to this adversity? Well, we don't know much about that, but what we do know is that one day, out of kindness to his fellow prisoners, the cupbearer and the baker, who clearly were looking a little worried and upset, he asks, why? What's wrong? They tell him about their dreams, and Joseph prays for an interpretation interpretation is given, it's actually fulfilled. The cupbearer survives, sadly the baker does not. And yet still, Joseph's suffering goes on. It's another two years at least before the cupbearer, back in Pharaoh's service, notices or discovers that Pharaoh has had a dream of his own. A dream he doesn't understand, it involves seven fat cows eating, seven skinny cows eating seven fat cows. And Pharaoh's perplexed. None of his advisors can explain it to him. And at that point, the cupbearer remembers, remembers that strange Hebrew man he met in the prison who explained his dream. And so Pharaoh sends for Joseph. That's his way in. He interprets the dream. Pharaoh asks for his advice. Joseph says, as the video told us, store up a fifth of your grain and be that human vending machine, as it put it. And so the seven years of plenty came. These huge vaults of grain were built and filled. And Joseph is entrusted not just with that program, but it seems pretty well with running the whole country. Which brings me onto my third point this morning, which is that when God called a people to himself, first spoken to Abraham, then Isaac, and then to Jacob, who he renamed Israel. He didn't do that just as a hobby, so he could have a special family, a special people for himself. He did it for a purpose. He needed a people, a chosen people, who would do something that was the heart of what God wished to do for mankind. And he didn't hang around. In that first generation of children of Jacob, of Israel, who became those 12 tribes later, there was one son who would be the chosen one who would reveal what God's heart for the whole of Israel, every one of the 12 sons and all of their descendants. And it's Joseph who's that one. It's Joseph who the dream said would be the one that would be bowed to. And that, of course, is what happened. And Joseph was the one who revealed God's purposes because Joseph was the one who brought the salvation, not just of Egypt, but of the whole known world. For after seven years of abundance, the vaults were opened. Egypt benefited from this food and they heard about it in Canaan. 
And so Jacob sent his remaining sons apart from Benjamin, who sadly was also special to him, the other child of Rachel. Joseph recognises his brothers when they come, but they don't recognise him. He presumably was wearing very different clothes, almost certainly had a beard, which wasn't the custom for Hebrews at the time. So he sees them, they fail to see him. And that's when I think we get to the most moving scene in the whole story. And if you look at the next picture now, this is where this scene takes place. On the left, you can see the brothers. And behind a screen, that's Joseph. So overtaken with emotion that he slips away, goes behind a curtain and, and mourns and grieves and cries we don't quite know why he's crying. It could be he's just so upset at what had happened to him. Or more likely, he's just so moved by being reconciled with his brothers and his father. And he can't quite cope with the moment. And so as it happens, actually, Joseph sends them back home without revealing himself. He says, bring my, my full brother, as he was, Benjamin, with you. They come back to get some more grain. And only at that moment, as Joseph has battled within himself about whether he should reveal himself to his family, he does it. And it's the most moving of moments. He he heads straight for Benjamin and embraces him. But then he's reconciled with all of his brothers. There's tears all round. It's a wonderful story of redemption. And it tells us something. Not only did God care that the people of Israel, the sons of Israel, Jacob's sons, should know what their purpose is, foreshadowed by Joseph's role at this time, to bring salvation, to bring sustenance to the whole of the known world. But what also mattered to God was not just their purpose, it was their unity God could not bear it that one of the sons of Israel would be unreconciled to the rest. And so it was part of the small picture in God's plan, alongside the big picture of God's plan of feeding the millions, that God planned that Joseph and his brothers and his father Jacob would be reconciled. And I think we can take from that that God also longs that each of us would be reconciled, that there would be unity, not just in the old Israel, but in the new Israel as well. So, our mission. What do we learn from this? Well, if the mission of Israel, shown by Joseph, was salvation for the nations, well then, of course, that also must be ours. We're the new Israel and and Joseph and his role in being sent away and coming back and bringing salvation to his family. It It was completed or fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus who was sent away, who was rejected by his brothers, who was betrayed, who gave his life for us. But through what happened to him, we all could live. Our role is to tell that story, to tell that good news, to recognise that we actually are foreigners in this world. We're strangers in 
in this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. But actually, this story, the story of Joseph is our story. And we're to live it out too. But here's the second parallel, which uh, really struck me as I was just uh, talking about this and preparing this. Second parallel with Joseph. As well as being foreigners and citizens and strangers in this world, we also, like him, are stewards, not owners. For him, all the resources that he distributed to save Egypt and to save uh, Israel and all the surrounding people as well. Well, they were Pharaohs. They weren't his. At no point in this story are the resources Joseph's. He's simply a steward. And here's the parallel with us. We also are stewards, not owners. Do we feel that? Well, we really should do. Because Jesus' parables were always so clear. We're entrusted with our resources, not given them. We're always the servant, never the master. It's God's agenda that counts, not ours. And we're to be judged according to the power of the talents for how we use the resources that God has given us. Do we use them to invest in his kingdom for his interests? Or do we keep them to ourselves and hide them? Or worse, spend them on us. Which is where gift day comes in. I was struck in studying Joseph, not just by the parallel with our mission to offer salvation to the world, but also by the parallel in the timing. In preparing at a time of relative plenty for a time of relative want. Because I think that's the situation we're in right now. Now, of course, global trends vary enormously. Outside Europe and North America, the Christian church is growing rapidly. But here in the West, it's getting harder. Let's be honest about that. Now, secularization tightens its grip. Our strongest cohort in this church is probably 60s and 70s. The realities in this country are stark. We need to invest in the future before it's too late. A church which isn't investing in the young, in future growth, will be a church that dies out. I certainly don't want that to happen here. Now, as a church, I think we've already responded to that challenge, that reality. We've invested particularly in Daniel, and we're seeing the fruit of that now starting to come. With numbers in our Thursday night, Friday night youth work, massively up, and also on Sunday mornings as well. And stability in the children's groups too. We're heading in the right direction. That we can celebrate. But it's not just about investment in people. We need to invest in our infrastructure as well to maintain all the things that we need to continue to run services in the way that we do. And that's where our gift days come in. The tradition I've inherited here is there's a gift day each year. One year it's for an internal project, the next external when it rotates around. Last year we wonderfully gave to the children of the dump for street children in Manila and it literally turned around their ministry. Buildings and schools that were to be closed were reopened and they will be eternally grateful for us. But with our internal gift days, we've done some amazing things. Last time it was the chairs that you're sitting comfortably on. We've also done the kitchen, we've done the car park and a number of different things. They're not all sexy projects. But if we do them, 
then we end up with a building that's fit for the future. We end up with a building that actually, perhaps a, a smaller church, if that's the way the trends are taking us, can afford to run it. A church that's viable. And when revival comes, a church that will be set up again to thrive. So I say to us all, let's invest in the future. We're in a position today where we can do that. And we want to use this gift day in that same way. So this year, the PCC has evaluated all of the options. Each year we think, what's the most urgent priority that we face? And we've discerned, looking at the possibilities, that actually, uh, largely speaking, updating our sound system, replacing most of it, although some of it, like the speakers, are, are fine. Replacing that which is ancient in comparative terms, which is 30 years when it comes to that sort of technology. We're aware it's really on its last legs. And we've uh, had a rigorous evaluation of what we definitely do need to replace and what we don't. And we've tendered, or we've put out tenders now for, uh, for companies to give us what we need and nothing that we don't need. So we think uh, to do this of, of largely replacing the sound system, getting it ready for the next 20 or 30 years, will cost us in the region of £30,000. That's what we hope to achieve today, that we might be able to raise that through this gift day and then this year leave our church with a sound system fit for purpose for the next 25 to 30 years. So we'd love to do that. With your generous help, I hope and pray that we can. But let me finish with this. Why would we do this? Why would we choose to respond in this way? Because God has been so generous to us. Joseph, a son of Israel, was rejected by his family, but then reappeared as their saviour. Jesus was another son of Israel who was also rejected. He was executed, but he too returned and brought salvation not just to Israel, but to the whole world, including me and you. So that's the first reason to respond, out of gratitude for Jesus. And the second is because it's his money anyway. We are purely stewards. We're not owners. We're given it to invest it in the kingdom. And here's the third reason. Because in God's miraculous economy, we'll get it all back anyway. Maybe not literally, but the Bible and our experience as a church has been clear. If we're generous for God, he will be generous to us. Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And Paul, in that reading that Paloma read to us, said this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each one of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things... At all times, having everything you need, you will abound in every good work. Is that what we want? The promise is there. If we give generously, and if we offer not just our time, 
Not just our treasure, which means our financial resources, and not just our talents, but offer them all if we're in a position to do so and accept that not everyone can. If we give regularly, if we give sacrificially so that we feel it, and if we give as we feel led and invite God to prompt us, well, then we will end up fulfilling the calling of God. So what we're going to do now is three things. First, I'm going to pray, and I'd like to invite the band just to come up again now. Then we're going to sing a song which the band will lead us in. It's a song just reminding us of the generosity of God given to us through Jesus. And then third, I'm going to tell us how we can respond more practically as part of this gift day today. So let's pray. Father, would you speak to us of how you would like each of us individually to respond? Whether that's financially, as we hope for many it will be. But if it can't be that for us, in whatever other way, we can play our part in your mission to the world to give salvation to others. So Lord, speak to us, call us, prompt us to respond for your glory. And may we do so cheerfully. Amen. So let's stand and sing together now.